Psalm 135 is where we pick up this evening. In Psalm 135, you'll notice if you read ahead or certainly as we go through it, uh, most of all the statements contained within this psalm here are actually drawn uh, from other passages of Scripture, uh, from other passages actually in the book of Psalms, as well as just other portions of the Word of God. And so a lot of what we find here in Psalm 135 is the restatement of truths that God has already communicated before within his word to kind of reinforce, we might say, what is already known. Uh, And God, many times in his word, we find, will declare things in a repetitious manner. For example, we'll see in our study in the book of Proverbs, there are a few Proverbs that are conveyed more than once, and it wasn't because God couldn't think of something new or beneficial to say, so he just kind of said the same thing again while he was trying to think of something new to say. Whenever we find repetition from an all-knowing, all-wise God, who the Scripture declares if everything was written in the Word of God that we could know, all the volumes on the earth couldn't even contain everything that would be held there within. So whenever God conveys something a second time, like we'll see in Proverbs, like we see here, it's because God is purposely trying to reinforce a certain truth, to make sure that we don't miss it, to make sure that we hear it if need be again, to have it kind of reinforce something that we already know. And remembering what we already know is sometimes a very, very beneficial thing. I think sometimes we think that we need new information, and sometimes we don't necessarily need new information. What we need is to hear somebody reinforce what we already know, just to remind us of things that perhaps we're already aware of, to bring us back into the remembrance of something that we've heard before that we just kind of need to be realigned, if you would, in the same way a chiropractic adjustment, if you do that type of thing, they realign you back to kind of to center again, and I think God does that in his word. And so you'll notice as we go through this, a number of the phrases, uh, it'll be very evident we've heard before, and now we have here God restating them to reinforce them to us another time. He opens the psalm with that familiar uh, Hebrew phrase, it's actually uh, the, the term hallelujah, it's rendered in the English, praise the Lord, turning our hearts towards giving God glory and worship, and then he begins to speak of some of the reasons why we should indeed do that very thing. Why should we praise the Lord? He says, praise the name of the Lord, praise him, O you servants of the Lord, you who stand in the house of the Lord in the courts of the house of our God. So the exhortation is given to praise the Lord, particularly here he calls those who are servants of the Lord, those who particularly he mentions would be there standing in the house of the Lord and in the courts of the house of our God. Now that included both those who were servants of the Lord, the priests, the Levites, who actually did the ministry activities within the house of the Lord itself, who would tend to you know, trimming the, the, the lampstands and refilling the oil and taking care of the showbread on the, the table of showbread and the altar of incense and going into the Holy of Holies and those who actually officiated in the house of the Lord itself and did the actual ministry activities, helped in offering the sacrifices that the people would bring. Those were those who were standing in the house of the Lord. So you might say the, those who were more officially doing the ministry of God's house, those who were ordained and called to do such, the priests, the tribe of Levi, remember, was all set apart to do that. 
but also there were also those who were there in the courts of the house of our God, and that would be the courts outside of the house of the Lord. We might kind of say like the, the temple courtyard, and remember there, were the, there was the court of the Jews, there was the court of the Gentiles, there was the court of men and women ultimately that existed, and so these were those who were there gathering to be assembled for worship, and very much they themselves also were servants of the Lord in different capacities. It wasn't what they did, in a sense, vocationally, but they served the Lord in their own various expressions as they lived their lives for God and the different things they would do as they were there as worshipers. Uh, And he calls here both uh, those who are officiating in the house of the Lord, those who are there gathered as servants of the Lord in the house of the Lord to offer to him praise. And again, even as we mentioned last time, if my memory serves right, as we were tying up our study last time from Psalm 134, it is very valuable to take notice that as God speaks to his servants, he reminds them that he wants more than just service. Again, God did not save me predominantly to get work out of me. In the same way that I did not uh, create three children together with my wife just to get more work done on the ranch. Uh, That wasn't the goal. The intention of having those children was to have fellowship with them and relationship with them and to have a, you know, a loving experience with them. Did they contribute at a certain point and do certain things? Yes. Uh, but the purpose of having them wasn't just to get work out of them or to have them serve and do things. If that was the case, I didn't do a very good job. I got all girls, so I'm still mowing the lawn. Uh, so all the hard stuff that would have helped me, <laughs> I didn't benefit from at all. Uh, My wife got a little few servants around the the kitchen area and learning some of those domestic duties. But again, God loves us, and God did not call us to be his children just to get service out of us, just to get labor out of us. And certainly we should serve the Lord. It should be an expression of our love for him. We should labor and work for the Lord and serve him in the different ways that he gives us opportunity to. But God wants, above all else, really from us worship. He just wants our love and our devotion and that we would foremost not just be servants, but that we would be worshipers who praise the name of the Lord, who praise him because of who he is, uh, and that out of our worship, then from that, the overflow of that, another expression of our worship would be work as well, the different ways that we serve God and, and give ourselves to do things for the Lord. But above all else, again, in the book of Psalms, has been a great reminder of that, that God wants our worship, right? How many times have we seen praise the Lord? sing to the Lord, give glory to the Lord. And again, continuously, this entire section of the Bible, the 150 Psalms, are continuous instructions about expressing worship to God, giving gratitude to God, expressing praise towards Him because He's worthy of honor and worthy of us giving Him that glory for just who He is and what He does in all of our lives. And here, once again, we see this reminder uh, of this as we're coming to the close now of these psalms. Verse 3, he says, And praise the Lord. And then he gives us a, another reminder why. He says, Praise the Lord. In case you need a, a, a reason, he says, For the Lord is good. Now, that alone right there is a constant reason that never changes why we should always praise the Lord. Because the Lord is good good. His very nature is good. The ways that he works is good. We've read in our Psalms together, going back a ways, the Bible says that that those who seek the Lord lack no good 
thing. The Bible tells us in James that every good and perfect gift comes down from above, from the Father of lights. And the Lord is good in his very nature. And that's wonderful to realize that never changes. God's always good. He always remains good. And that's wonderful because that's very different than humanity. I can't say that I'm always good, that I do everything good. I can't say that my interactions with people cause me to always find good people. There are people who do very bad things. They're very unfortunate things. And as we live in this world and watch it decaying and getting worse, as the world gets more bad and more discouraging and more decayed, isn't it not really, really wonderful as a child of God to always have something good to celebrate? Right? I mean, you could spend all day long nowadays, if you want to waste your time doing such, scrolling through news on the internet, and you'll probably never find anything good because they don't usually report on that. Right? They just report on everything bad that's happening in the world, and, and it's just a constant bombardment of all the bad and the wickedness and the discouraging things that are happening. But how wonderful to have that news flash to always know that th this banner never changes. The Lord is always good. He's always good, and we can rejoice in that. We, we can celebrate that no matter what's going on, whether our day is going good or our day is going bad. The Lord remains good. Whether the season that we're in is good by our definition or it's a really bad season, the Lord is still good. And we can trust that the goodness of God is something that is going to help us no matter where we're at in life or what we're going through, that he's going to display his goodness to us because that's his very nature. He's going to be good to us, which makes all the more reason why he's worthy of being honored by us, worthy of us looking to him. What a waste of time to look anywhere else when you realize that there is a good God who only wants to do good things in your life. And it's only as we look to him that we more and more get to experience that, and that gives us the responsive attitude that we should praise the Lord because he is indeed good. So he then tells us how to do that, as he has many times in the book of Psalms. One of the greatest ways that we can give praise and worship, he says, verse 3, is to sing praises to his name. So to express through song, through music to use music and melody and to take our voices and to lift songs to the Lord, to express worship him to him in the form of singing. That's something he desires. It blesses him that we would lift our voices to him in song. And so he says, sing praises to his name. Notice for it is pleasant. It's pleasant when we sing praises to the Lord's name. And I think that's true in numerous senses. First of all, it's pleasant to the Lord. It's like a sweet aroma lifting up into his nostrils when we sing praises to the Lord. It, it honors him. Malachi tells us that, that he stoops down and his ear becomes attentive when his people even are speaking about him. And just like with the, the sweet incense, the smell, the aroma would rise off of the altar of incense, in a wonderful way, it is a pleasant fragrance to the Lord to see you and I singing praises to him because he knows we can't all sing. Right? And he knows that some of us may not even like to sing. And for some of us, it's a real act of humility to sing. Right? I, we even see that to this day. To this day, you can just take a scan on any church service, look around the room. There are some people who still, even in the house of the Lord, just stand there and won't sing. Why everyone else is singing to the Lord? Because they're Pride won't let them, or they don't want to sing to the Lord. But, but, so when, when we sing to the Lord, God goes, that's really pleasant. Because I know that takes humility. 
And I know that you know that you don't sound good, Tony. And, and, I, and I know that the person three rows down from you, they're throwing you off track because they're totally out of tune. But it's really pleasing me that you are humbly showing love to me. Because again, what can we give to the Lord? I mean, really, what can we give to him? But the one thing we can do is sing praises to him. It's something he is pleased with, and he finds it very pleasant against our way of expressing humbly love to him and saying, God, you're worthy of my honor. You're worthy of my glory. And so it's a very pleasant thing to him. And again, remember that because that is truly what it is about when during the song portion of the worship service, because the whole thing is a worship service. We often talk about leading worship, and we think about the person who's playing a guitar or, and the singing portion of the service. That, that's an aspect of worship. All of what we do is worship under the Lord. This is worship under the Lord just in a different way. It's submitting our heart and attention to the Word of God and letting the Holy Spirit speak to us and being responsive to whatever He's communicating to us through His Word, through prayer, through the giving of our resources, through the way that we serve and do things to care for one another. These are all different aspects and expressions of worship, but one of the ways that we can certainly do that is by just singing to him, and it pleases his heart, and so we remember, that's why I should do it. Not because I enjoy it, not because I do it, because it pleases him. And I want to give something that's pleasing to him. I want to bless his heart. And when you realize it's pleasant to him, it changes your whole outlook about the singing thing because you realize why you're doing it and that you're doing it as an act of love to bring a pleasant thing to him. And I'll tell you, it's not just pleasant to the Lord. There is something when you really begin to value it, there's something really pleasant personally as a human being to hear people singing praises to the Lord, right? I, I mean, I don't know about you, but there are occasions where, you know, you know people are leading worship and we're singing where I, pr I just purposely choose to go silent for a moment because I just enjoy the pleasant sound of a group of people who may not all call to be gifted singers, but they all love Jesus. And they're just lifting their voices in one accord. And how often do everybody on the earth be able to come together in one accord without division and just... In one accord, hey, we just, we're all loving God here. We're all telling God that he's awesome and that we need him and that we're looking to him. And there's something so pleasant about that, something very refreshing and enjoyable. It's pleasant to us to be able to experience that and very powerful and moving. A lot of times I listen to that and I think, you know, wow, I mean, what is heaven going to be like? Every tribe, every tongue, every nation, you know, 10,000s upon thousands upon thousands, all just as a multitude singing expressions of praise. to It's going to be a powerful, powerful thing. And so it's pleasant just to, to hear it. I mean, you can't tell me your spirit is not uplifted when you listen to God's people singing him. It's a pleasant experience for us personally as well. He says, verse 4, For the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself and Israel for his special treasure. So there he's speaking about a reason to praise the Lord is because of the incredible grace that God has chosen the nation of Israel, that, that God, by his sovereign choice, picked this people, the Jews, who he made the nation of Israel. Jacob, of course, is a reference, another name for Israel, who became his chosen people. And it says here, one of the reasons we should praise him is because of the incredible act of his grace that he chose people like the nation of Israel. So for them, they had great reason to choose to praise the Lord because he had made them a special treasure. Let me read to you from Deuteronomy chapter 7 how this very reality is kind of what's being referred to here 
in, in verse 4. Deuteronomy 7, in verse 6 through 8, listen, it declares this. God says to his people, the Jews, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people, for you were the least of all peoples. But because the Lord loves you, and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So again, this reminder, God's saying to his people, listen, I didn't choose you because you had something to offer. I didn't choose you per se because I realized, well, that's a really big group of people. That's a very resourceful nation. So therefore, yes, I could get the most out of them. God chose them because it was his sovereign choice by grace. They deserved nothing any more than any of us deserve nothing. But God in his graciousness chose them and, and put a purpose upon them, made them to be the light of the world, the people through which he would orchestrate his divine purposes to bring the, the, the word of God, the prophecies of God, to bring the Messiah, the Savior into the world, and to orchestrate his divine purposes through them as a people group. He chose them and he made them, notice, his own special treasure. So he chose them in their complete unworthy condition, nothing really special about them, but he made them special. He made them a special treasure. And again, the Bible tells us in the New Testament, 1 Peter chapter 2, that that's exactly what God has also done with you and I. God chose the nation of Israel nationally and orchestrated his plans and purposes through them. The Bible tells us that God has chosen you and I spiritually, that he's foreordained that we should be chosen to be children of God and that God has made you and I a chosen nation spiritually, a royal priesthood. He's made us his own special treasure. And again, when we think about who we were, would you have picked you? I wouldn't have picked me. You know, people have said tongue-in-cheek before, it's a good thing God chose me before I was born because he never would have chose me after I was born. And I think we can all relate to that to a degree. It's not like we were offering something really special to God that God was saying, well, I mean, how can I resist that draft pick? I mean, that would be a good pick right there. Instead, it's the exact opposite, right? It was a complete act of his grace. And like Paul said, you know, that his life just became like a trophy of the grace of God. Paul said, I was the last person who should have ever been chosen and picked to be God's son, and more than that, to be God's servant. But he chose me, and he made me a special treasure and an object of his love and his grace, and it, it just displays the kindness of God and the incredible grace of what he can do in our lives. And so again, this should give us tremendous reason. When you realize the grace that's been shown to you, that God picked you, chose you, even as he chose Israel, that should give you and I great reason to want to praise the Lord, to always have a worshipful attitude towards him and to express that honor and glory to his name. He says, verse five, for I know that the Lord is great. And our Lord is above all gods. Again, our Adonai, our ruler, our master, is above all other rulers and masters. He is the greatest ruler of all. And to express that, verse 6, he says, And whatever the Lord pleases, he does. And notice, in heaven and in earth, in the seas 
and all the deep places. So whether heaven and earth, whether to the very depths of the sea on the earth, he says God is completely in sovereign rulership, exercising his power to do whatever pleases him. He's in complete control. And when he says here, whatever pleases him, that's what he does. And again, he's just extolling this reality of the Lord is great. How do we know he's great? Because he does whatever he wants. We may want to do whatever we want sometimes, but God even at times has a nice way of kind of saying, I can overrule that whenever I feel like it. I know he's done that in my life a few times. Where God just reminds you, look, I'm going to do whatever I please. And I'm going to call the shots and I'm going to be in control. And whatever I want to do by my power, I can accomplish. Whether it's in heaven, God does whatever he pleases. Whether it's on earth, God can do whatever he pleases. Whatever he desires, he does. And I don't know about you, I find that very attractive. I don't find that something that bothers me in the slightest bit because honestly, God knows way better than I do. He's way wiser than I am. He's got a much better plan. He typically sees way further down the road, and when God's doing whatever he desires and pleases today, he's doing it because he knows that connects very perfectly to tomorrow, to next week, to next month, to next year. And so when God rules and shows his power and does whatever he pleases, we can trust that God is doing that with love and wisdom and foresight, and he's doing it really for our best interest. And he's doing it because he's already about to connect the dot of this to the very next thing which would please him. And so for us to be able to rest in that is a, a wonderful reality. Lord, you do whatever you please. And, and I don't know about you, but again, that makes me very, very confident. God is not insecure. God's not persuaded or pushed or nobody's gonna make God do something that he doesn't wanna do. People may do that to one another on this earth, but the one thing you're never gonna do and I'm never gonna do is I'm never gonna twist God's arm and get him to change his mind. God is going to do whatever he desires and whatever he pleases, and he does it always with the greatest wisdom and with his sovereign control over everything and his loving judgment of what is best for all. So whether in heaven or earth, God is doing what he pleases. Verse 7, he describes further how he causes the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth he makes lightning for the rain, and he brings wind out of his treasury. So again, God's doing whatever he pleases in creation, controlling all things. He mentions there in verse 7 what we often refer to as the, the hydraulic system of evaporation and condensation and then precipitation. Again, these things that God has set in order, working according to how he desires, doing what he pleases, controlling even creation and nature itself, orchestrating all those things, causing the vapors to ascend, causing then the condensation and then making lightning for the rain as the storms then bring the precipitation down and the wind coming out of his treasuries. And again, what a reminder too of how the Lord does whatever he pleases. Even as it says there, verse seven, he makes lightning for the rain. Uh, they say by research that they've done that lightning actually ends up being something that's very beneficial for the earth that it actually has a way lightning does to sort of help uh, fertilize and clean the air and the atmosphere. So again, as God's doing all these things, you think, oh man, lightning, why would, why would lightning strike? Well, God has purposes for lightning strikes even. <laughs> he has purposes for everything that he does as he's orchestrating and controlling all things in his great wisdom. 
He describes in verse 8 the power of God to deal with the enemies of God's people when he delivered them out of Egypt. He says he destroyed the firstborn of Egypt. Remember, that was the last of the plagues as God was redeeming his people and taking them out of bondage and slavery, both man and beast. He sent signs and wonders into the midst of you, O Egypt, all the different miracles and the plagues that God was bringing to sort of humble Pharaoh and begin to soften up the ground to get his people to be released. And even in that, God was doing that to try and reveal himself to Pharaoh, that Pharaoh may know. And so he says, God, this is a sign of your power upon Pharaoh and all his servants. And then verse 10, he also defeated many nations and slew mighty kings, Sihon, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan and all the kingdoms of Canaan. So speaking of their journey through the wilderness and how God was defeating these different enemy territories as they would go through and these great kings, God would deal with them as they would try and oppose his people. He would work on their behalf to dethrone the king and give victory to his people. Ultimately, verse 12, so that he might then give their land as a heritage, a heritage to Israel his people. Again, notice God owns the land. God can give the land to whoever he wants. And so God dethroned these other people and God ultimately gave that land to his chosen people to fulfill his purposes. And, and again, what a beautiful thing to see that when something stands in the way of something that we are intended to inherit according to God's purpose and God's will, if it pleases God to give you something or to cause you to inherit something, something he has as a purpose for your life, God will dethrone anything that's in the way. God will remove anything he needs to remove. God says, Og's in the way, I'll remove Og. No problem, God says. Sihon, king of the Amorites, he's in the way of what I want to do for my servant, so therefore, going to have to get rid of him. And what a wonderful thing that God does whatever he pleases in such a way that sometimes God is even willing to dethrone and remove and eradicate Anything or anyone that stands between what he wants for him and his people. And what a wonderful thing that God in his loving power will work in such ways that he might give to us really what is best for us as he gave them the land. And that land, of course, is the picture of him giving to us the promised life and all the blessings of the things that he wants for you, even as he gave to his people a physical land in Israel. Verse 13, he says, in your name, O Lord, endures forever. Your fame, O Lord, your popularity, your being known throughout all generations. For the Lord will judge his people and have compassion on his servants. Now that term there, verse 14, the Lord will judge his people, it's literally a term in the Hebrew that, that speaks of vindication. So what's being described there is he's talking about dealing with their enemies and giving to them the land. The idea is that the Lord will, we might say, bring justice for his people. And as he brings justice for his people, he will have compassion on his servants. And again, what a wonderful reminder, as God's people were mistreated, and as God's people today may be mistreated, that we can always rest, that because God does what he pleases, God can bring about justice for us as his people. And he can show compassion to us when we are being done wrong or someone is doing what's wrong, God can bring about justice for us. He can vindicate us. We don't have to take matters into our own hands. We can trust his compassion for us as his servants and let him deal with those who are causing us problems. Now, verse 15 down through verse 18, you'll notice, hasn't been too long, this is very 
sort of repetitious from Psalm 115. We saw these very same statements back there. The idols of the nations are silver and gold. The work of men's hands. In other words, these are things that men have fashioned. That is, they were worshiping things they created. Rather than worshiping the creator, they were creating what they wanted as their representation of God. You know, nothing new under the sun, right? People today, they want to create their own idea of what God is. So according to the fashioning of their own idea, they want to take a little of this idea and a little bit of this preference for living this way and having things that way, and they create their own idea of who God is and what God is like, rather than how is God revealed in the word of God because that's who he is. And he says they were creating these idols, fashioning them, and they would make these idols and according to all different appearances, you know, and, and fashion them. Again, if it was a, a, an idol that was intended to, you know, arouse them in some way sexually, they would create this erotic image. Or if they wanted a, an idol that was going to ward off all their enemies, they would create this ugly-looking, grotesque figure to kind of scare them. So whatever they needed, we'll just create our God like that. And so they would fashion their idols in that way, but notice he speaks of the, the, the vainness of doing such thing. He says, verse 16, these idols have mouths, but they don't speak. They have eyes, but their eyes don't even see anything. He says they have ears, but they don't hear, nor is there any breath in their mouths, and those who make them are like them, and so is everyone who trusts in them. So he says the worthlessness of worshiping any idol, which again, an idol is anything other than the worship of the one true and living God. That's what idolatry is, worshiping anything other than the true God. And he says all these other false things that people worship, he says, are utterly worthless. He says they have mouths, but they can't even speak anything. Now, in contrast, we have a God who speaks to us. How awesome is that? We have a God that communicates to us. And we can hear from God. And God will speak things that we need to hear and that we need to know. He says, they have eyes, but they don't see. We have a God who's an all-seeing and all-knowing God. God sees everything that's going on in your life. God even sees, as I mentioned earlier, what's coming ahead in your life. And with providence and foreknowledge, seeing ahead, he does today what's going to get you better ready for tomorrow or next week or next month because God sees everything. We have a God who sees everything. He's fully aware he says, they're gods, they have ears, but they don't hear. Our God hears. He hears your prayers. He hears the things that you cry out to him about and your requests that you bring before him. He, he's listening. He's fully attentive. And he says, nor does their, their God even have any power. He says, there's no breath in their mouths. That is, they have no life or power to even do anything, right? When they moved, what did they have to do? Pack their little God and bring it to their new location. They had to carry their God around. I don't want a God I have to carry. I want a God that can carry me. Right, But this, is, this was the vainness of this, that their God didn't even do anything to help them. It had no power and life within it to even do anything to assist them. And the vainness and the foolishness of worshiping anything other than God. And again, let me just say, you know, everybody worships something. Right? People try and act today like they're so sophisticated. It's more, oh, I, I, don't, I don't need this Jesus thing. That, that's such a crutch, you, know, you Christians. You you have to have something to worship. So you create this idea of something and so that you, ha you have to be able to worship something. And the reality is, is look, everybody worships something. People act like they don't worship, 
well, I don't need to worship something. You worship something. Everybody worships something. <laughs> the only difference is I'm not embarrassed to admit what I worship. And I'm fully comfortable with who I worship. And sadly, people have this mentality, well, I don't need to worship something. I don't worship anything. The reality is whatever the master passion is in any of our life, that is what we worship. That's what we bow down to. Everybody has a God. It may be themselves, and they're the most self-serving, selfish person because they worship themselves and their own desires and their own drives, and, and life's all about them. Or it may be a, you know, a, a, a pursuit, it may be a relationship, it may be some pleasure. Whatever the master passion is in our life that drives us, it's what we think about, it's what we give our, most of our time to, it's what our energy is about, it's what all of our interest is in, that's what we're worshiping. And the difference for you and I is at least we're worshiping something that's worthwhile. We're worshiping the Lord the living God who sees and knows and hears and has power to help us and give us great strength in wonderful ways as we navigate through this life. And he says, verse 18, the sad conclusion is those who make these idols are like them and so is everyone who trusts them. So again, there's that truth in verse 18 that the Bible teaches that whatever we worship, we become like. So those who are worshiping these dead, cold, metal idols idolatrous images of gold and silver, and they were worshiping these dead, cold statues, guess what they became like? Like cold, insensate, dead people on the inside. Because whatever we worship, the Bible tells us, we become like. So whatever a person gives all their worship to, they, they naturally become like that. The good thing is, is for you and I, if we're worshiping the living God, if we're worshiping Jesus and we're worshiping and trusting Jesus, we will gradually become more like our God. We'll gradually become more like Jesus. It works in a wonderful way because as we worship the Lord and trust in him in the same way, it affects us in a beneficial way. He concludes the psalm by saying, bless the Lord, O house of Israel. That was the whole nation. Bless the Lord, O house of Aaron. That was the priestly line. Bless the Lord, O house of Levi. Those were the tribe that were the ministers, the workers among God's tabernacle and worship system. And then he just includes everyone, you who fear the Lord. Doesn't matter if you're from Israel or if you're a Gentile. He says, anyone who fears and reverences the Lord, bless the Lord. Blessed be the Lord out of Zion, who dwells there in Jerusalem. That's where his presence was. And again, he comes back to that same concluding phrase, it's almost like a bookmark on the end of these great statements, praise the Lord, he concludes with again, or hallelujah, give praise to the Lord. Psalm 136 is actually a responsive psalm. It was actually utilized many times between the priests and the people or a choir director and a choir where the first line would be uttered by the priests and the people would respond back uh, with the statement there. Uh, so you want to try it? Sure you do. So we'll try it in this way. We'll read through portions of it. You'll notice this repeated refrain. He says, his mercy endures forever. Okay? So I'll read the first line. You responsibly read the second line. Let's try verses one through three. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. You guys are good at this. Oh, give thanks to the God of gods. Oh, give thanks to the Lord of lords. 
do you get God's trying to drive home a point a little bit? 26 times, or excuse me, yeah, 26 times, there's that repeated refrain there for his mercy endures forever. It's that Hebrew term, the, the hesed, which literally is a phrase that speaks of a loyal, loving kindness. That God has a loving kindness in such a way in his goodness that he's very loyal to continue to extend to his people. And so 26 times he continues to repeat this emphasis that no matter what is going on or what's happening, there is no way that we can ever tap out or completely deplete the reservoir of the loyal, loving kindness of God, that his mercy is expressed and it endures forever and ever and ever, and you can never exhaust it. Isn't that some good news? That it endures forever. There's a lot of enduring mercy with God. I don't know, man. I, I really think I might have pushed the boundary now. It endures forever. His mercy just keeps being expressed again and again and again. Look at verses 4 to 9. Let's do the same. He says, to him who alone does great wonders. To him who by wisdom made the heavens. To him who laid out the earth above the waters. To him who made great lights. The sun to rule by day. And the moon and stars to rule by night. So again, speaking here of this reality of how God's greatness and God's loving kindness and loyal love was displayed even in his acts of creation, in the way he established the creative order, what we see in nature, the way it says here that in his great wonders, notice by his wisdom, he made the heavens. Isn't that interesting? God utilized wisdom. You know wisdom's important if God utilized it, right? And often we're so concerned in our generation about what? Knowledge. You got to get smarter. Used to be, you, know, you got to get yourself a, a bachelor's degree. Not good enough. We need to make more money. You need a master's for that. Not good enough. You're going to have to get a doctorate for that. And again, we have such an emphasis, especially in an information age now where there is so much information available to all of us, and we put such an emphasis in, in our human world on being smarter, having more knowledge, more information. Look, I'm not diminishing the value of education or saying there's anything not beneficial about acquiring knowledge and learning, but you read God's Word, and we'll see when we get to the very next book in the Bible, God's all about wisdom. Wisdom, because wisdom is how to live right. And, and I know many people, you do as well, that are very educated fools. And then I know other people who aren't that educated, but they live really wise. They live well. And it reflects in the health of just the life that they experience. And again, so God himself used wisdom. That's why the earth and creation is so incredible the way it is, because as he laid out the earth, 
He made the great lights, the sun and the moon to rule by day and rule by night, how all those things control that the day has a set amount of hours and that controls the seasons that we experience and, you know, gravity and different, all these different things that are, are orchestrated by the wise way that God in his loving wisdom laid out everything in creation so that we could enjoy the benefits that we all do here living on this earth. Let's read verse 10 down through a little bit further. It says, to him who struck Egypt in their firstborn. For out of Israel from among them, with a strong hand and an outstretched arm, to him who divided the Red Sea in two and made Israel pass through the midst of it. But he overthrew Pharaoh and his army in the Red Sea. So again, the mercy of God displayed in the deliverance, right, out of Egypt. A complete act of God's mercy. He saw the, the pitiful condition of his people as slaves in Egypt struggling they were being ruled over in harsh bondage in misery and god heard their cries and his mercy was aroused and in his mercy he orchestrated a way to go in and to redeem them to bring out israel it says with a strong hand and an outstretched arm god rescued them dividing the red sea doing something miraculous to bring them out of their situation God brought them through a way that there had never been a way to get out of before, but God said, I can make a way to get you out of anything. And God opened the sea and parted the waters and brought them through and caused them to pass through the midst of it and to come to the other side and then dealt with Pharaoh as he brought the waters back in upon it. And of course, it's all just you know, a, a, a reflection of the greater redemption, the greater rescue and salvation that you and I experienced from being slaves to sin. And how God brought us out from the bondage and the slavery of the devil who was like Pharaoh, ruling over our lives, controlling us, keeping us in a miserable, slave-like condition, stuck in the world, having no purpose for our lives, and how God saw us in that condition and he had mercy upon us. And because his mercy endured, no matter where we were, God orchestrated redemption. And God came in. And God did whatever it took, Right? to reach you, to reach me. And the story's different for all of us even here in this room. The, 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 the paths that God made to divide the sea, to bring you out of where you were, whatever that was. And it was different for all of us, but God did what it took, didn't he? He knew how to break through. He knew how to rescue us, to get us out of that, to bring us into relationship with him. He says, verse 16 there, let's finish up. To him who led his people through the wilderness... He says, to him who struck down great kings and slew famous kings. Here's their names again. Sihon, king of the Amorites. And Og, king of Bashan. And then gave their land as a heritage. A heritage to Israel, his servant. Again, God's mercy being shown, looking and saying, there is no way they could defeat these kings themselves, but I'm going to have mercy upon them in their weakness. There's no way they could acquire what I want them to experience 
but I'm going to have mercy upon them and I'm going to make it happen for them by defeating these enemies and giving them the land. And again, it's like God said, look, you'll never get it on your own, but I'm just going to drop it right into your lap. I'm just going to give you the land. Again, they didn't dig the wells. They didn't do anything, right? God gave them the land as a free gift. He just blessed them with it. And so often that's how God brings about his good purposes in our lives. I don't know about you, some of the best things that have come into my life, the best things that have come into your life are the things you didn't even work for, things you didn't have to strive for. God just said, you could never do that on your own, so I'm just going to drop it right on you. I'm just going to bring you right into it. And God has a way of just removing all the barriers and just bringing it in to give you the very thing as a heritage that he wants to bless you with. Verse 23, let's conclude the psalm here. He says, who remembered us in our lowly state. He rescued us from our enemies. Who gives food to all flesh. Oh, give thanks to the God of heaven. So again, these expressions of God's mercy, he remembers us in our lowly state. The idea is our humbled, low condition. When we were at our lowest, God's mercy said, you're really at a low spot. And and the nation of Israel, to remember the mercy of God, that God saw them in their lowly condition but yet God didn't pass them over. Maybe everybody else did, but God said, I'm willing to get you out of that lowly condition. And God raised them up and chose them as his people, rescued them from the power of their enemies. And even again, the provision of God is an act of his mercy. He gives food to all flesh. That's an act of God's mercy. It is God's mercy that he provides food for all flesh. Oftentimes, again, these just very ordinary things in life, we often don't connect them to the mercy of God. But again, even those putting their seed into the ground who've tilled the land and put in the seed and then they buried over with dirt, what really can they do more at that point? It is the mercy of God, right, that brings the rain and the sun and even causes the miracle of a seed producing fruit or a harvest. I mean, planting seed is a miracle. It truly is. I mean, just you put that thing in the ground and somehow you throw dirt on it and food comes, right? I mean, God has ways to just mercifully provide food for his people. Or if you're more of the carnivore side, and I'm on your team, God makes Mr. Deer go running by, and you go, mercy, absolute, thank you, Lord, for mercy. I didn't have to hunt around in the cold forever. You knew I wanted a steak. I didn't want to eat vegan or vegetarian. Thank you. Lord, your mercy, you brought brought food across my path. And again, whatever it involves, God has ways in his mercy to provide for us whatever we need to take care of us. And it's an indication of his very goodness and mercy in our lives. Now, Psalm 137 is a little bit of a downer. We won't be in it long, but you'll, you'll realize it would be good to just tie up with this and then to worship and think about the Lord afterwards. It's a psalm written from a place of deep regret. As the captives of Israel had failed God in their rebellion to him and found themselves there in Babylon, 70 years in captivity, Jerusalem had been sacked, the walls broken down, the city lit on fire, the families being ravaged, women and children being violated, put to death. I mean, horrible things we know happened when the Babylonians came in and conquered the nation of Israel with great cruelty. 
And so the psalmist writes this from a place of great and deep regret. He says here, by the rivers of Babylon, as they're sitting there now, perhaps by the Euphrates, the Tigris, very different than where they were, there we sat, yea, we wept. The idea is in grief. And often we weep after we know that we've been defeated, right? And we find ourselves imprisoned in something that we didn't want to be stuck in. And like Peter, who wept after he failed the Lord, these people here and they're realizing we are somewhere we never thought we would be. I can't believe we're stuck sitting here in the rivers of Babylon now. This was never what we were supposed to go through, and now they're just there weeping in deep regret, as we all do at times, in deep regret for finding ourselves somewhere we don't want to be, but because of our own mistakes or sinful failures, we find ourselves grieving and regret. When we remembered Zion, they remembered where they were. Right? They're thinking, man, what we had. And, and what they lost, the benefit of being in Jerusalem, there in Zion, worshiping God. We hung our harps upon the willows in the midst of it. For there, those who carried us away captive asked of us a song. And those who plundered us requested mirth, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. Again, the idea is they're just the, the sarcasm of the enemy who had conquered them. There they're sitting weeping. They got deep regret. And, and this, isn't this what the enemy does? The sarcastic torture that goes along with it afterwards, the things people say, or just the things the enemy says in our minds to make us feel more remorseful after we're already dealing with the regret. And here the enemy, again, the Babylonians had conquered all types of different tribes and territories, so no doubt they would say they didn't just conquer the nation of Israel and the Jews alone. They had conquered other territories, so no doubt they would turn to their captives and say, hey, sing us one of the songs of your hometown. Hey, you people of Zion, sing us one of those Zion hymns. Sing us one of those worship songs, maybe one of those Hillel psalms. We heard that you guys sing a lot. Sing us one of those worship songs that you used to sing back in your temple when you worshiped your God before we conquered you because of your foolishness and your weakness and kind of in that sarcasm. And notice verse 4, the response. They said, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? The idea is, in essence, they're saying, look, how can we possibly celebrate and, and, and sing the Lord's song when we know that we're where we're not supposed to be? This is not where we're supposed to be. We're not supposed to be out here in Babylon. We're completely outside of God's will, God's plan, God's purpose, and in just an attitude of feeling defeated, they said it just... How can we sing the Lord's music when we're not in step with the Lord's will? We're not where we're supposed to be. And, you know, and, I, and I, I can totally see how that resonates with any who can have that experience as well, that if somebody is in a foreign land, they've stepped outside of the will of God, they're living in a backslidden condition, they're not where they're supposed to be. And they've become detached from God's plan and purpose, and they're living in quote-unquote a foreign land because it's not what God intends for them, there is kind of that same struggle. Hey, why don't you worship God? It's really hard to worship God when I know I'm where I'm not supposed to be. I know I'm off track. I know I'm not in the right place. And again, that's a real regretful struggle to wrestle with that. And here the people were feeling, oh man, how can we, 
we're, we're somewhere where we're not supposed to be. It's so hard to lift our eyes and worship to the Lord. What was the key? They needed to, in attitude of repentance and submission, ultimately get back to where God wanted them to be, as they would be brought back. So in, in reflecting of that, verse 5, they say, if I forget you, O Jerusalem, and again, remember, Jerusalem was representative of life with God. God at the center of their lives there where they worshiped him in Jerusalem at the capital. If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. If I don't remember you, let my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I don't exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy. In other words, if, if I forget that what matters most is having God at the center of our lives, if I forget that having life with God is what matters more than anything and exalt that as the most important thing, then he says, man, what else matters? I might as well have a crippled hand, and I might as well never be able to speak again. Everything else is worthless, right? And when we lose God at the center of our life, that's kind of how life becomes. It becomes very miserable and worthless. And when, when anyone, sadly, you know, takes a, a detour of backsliding, that's the most miserable condition in the world. I'm convinced that the backslidden Christian is probably more miserable than even unsafe people. Because they have the Spirit of God within them, and they know some of the Word of God, and they've experienced some of what the Lord has done in their life, and now they're in a place where they have too much of Jesus to enjoy the world, and they're doing too much of the world to really enjoy Jesus. And so they're miserable. They're in a place where they're completely miserable because they realize, man, I can't even enjoy some good old sin out here because I feel miserable every time I do it over here in Babylon. And it's just a miserable place to be. And he's just like, if, if I don't remember God at the center of my life, then, then everything's worthless. I might as well be a crippled mute because life's just worthless at that point. And again, they're just dealing with this regretful misery. So verse 7, they say, remember, O Lord, against the sons of Edom. And that was the, the people of Edom who were sadly in arrogance cheering the destruction of Israel being destroyed the day of Jerusalem, who said, raise it, raise it. The idea is destroy it, destroy it to its very foundation. Again, Obadiah speaks of God's judgment that would come upon the people of Edom because they were celebrating the destruction of God's people. They were celebrating the, 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 the sufferings of God's people. And again, never good to celebrate when God's disciplining someone else. But this is what Edom was doing in their pride. And Obadiah speaks of how God would judge them severely because they were saying, go ahead, destroy it. They deserve it, those people of God. And they were kind of cheering the judgment being brought against God's people because of the error of their ways. Look, when God's dealing with people, that's his business. It's not our job to celebrate God judging other people. It's not our job to be happy about it. But he concludes verse 8 and 9 by saying, O daughter of Babylon, now this is, notice, prophetic. O daughter of Babylon, who are to be destroyed. In other words, it's something coming. Who are to be destroyed. Isaiah speaks of it as well as the other prophets. Happy the one who repays you as you served us. Happy the one, the idea is happy will be the one who takes and dashes your little ones against the rock. Now what's described here is the, the psalmist is speaking about how he recognized that despite their failure, that the nation of Babylon was used as God's tool to come in and judge and discipline God's own people. However, what the nation of Babylon did was they went way too far. 
They were being used as God's instrument to bring discipline to God's people, but they let barbaric cruelty in their humanity just take over. And they treated the people horribly and with way too much severity and cruelty to the degree that is even described here. Notice, happy will be the one one day as you reap what you sowed in our lives who dashes your little ones against the rocks. Again, historians tell us, and you can understand, perhaps the psalmist was one who witnessed as the barbaric you know, activity of the Babylonians happened where they came in and they ravaged the women and they literally took little children and would throw them and crush their skulls and put them to death upon the rocks. And again, this barbaric cruelty as they went way too far in their severity of their mistreatment of God's people as they were coming in and conquering them. And so here the psalmist recognizes, look, one day you are going to be repaid for the horrific, barbaric, cruel things that you've done. Again, it's this whole idea of sowing and reaping, that God was not going to let them go innocent. It might have looked like that they were exerting their prideful arrogance and power and destroying and ruining lives and getting away with it. Not from God's economy. From God's economy, he saw the wicked tyrant and the evil things that they were doing, and God said one day they were going to be repaid according to exactly what they had done to the nation of Israel. And here the psalmist is reflecting upon that very thing. He says, in the same way that you found it joyful and weirdly, you know, enjoyable to take and dash our little ones against the rock, he says, one day when you are repaid, you're going to reap the same pain into your own life. And again, it's just a reminder to all of us in our lives that people may do some really, really wicked things, and it may be really, really bothersome, and we may really, really want to repay people. We need to let God take care of that business. We need to commit people to the Lord and do what's right ourselves and realize, you know what, just like the nation of Israel, hey, we've done some wrong things ourselves, and God's had to deal with us, so we're just going to let the Lord deal with them and just trust God to do those very things. Let's stand together.